Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, our exposition of the book of Acts in which we're taking a look through the book of Acts, how the early church was formed, how God was working through his people to spread the gospel, to help them and enable them to fulfill the great commission that Jesus Christ had given them to continue the work truly that he had started. And I pray that you're uh, found well and that you'll be joining us in the book of Acts We'll be in Acts chapter 18 today, and we'll be taking a look at the first 11 verses, the first 11 verses, and we'll be looking at the fact, uh, I've called this one, I am with you, that the abiding presence of God goes with his people to enable the work and to encourage them on the way. And this is what we're going to see in the book of Acts, but we're going to see the abiding presence of God in several ways. We're going to see it in his provision of people, in the things that he has provided for us to enable the ministry, and we're going to see it in his protection and even in his very presence itself. So a great opportunity for us to come together to learn uh, what God has done and to see how indeed he can accomplish many great things through us as church. Let's take a look then at Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Tedious Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Well, why don't we appropriately begin with a word of prayer. Father God, over these uh, scriptures we pray. We pray, Lord, that you will enlighten us to these things, that you will convict us that these are indeed your very words. And Lord, I pray that we would understand what you would have us to understand about your abiding presence and the critical nature of your presence with us as we seek to spread the gospel truth. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you will be known and glorified through this preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we have an interesting passage, and this is a a break from Paul's pattern, and we'll see more about that in a moment. The first thing I want to show you, though, is I want to show you some of the people of God that come around. And many of them are mentioned in this passage as passage features, especially as you go further through chapter 18. A great number of people associated with Paul who are also at work in the labor of the gospel. 
the temptation as we read the book of Acts is to kind of fall into a pattern of, of seeing, oh, this is just about Peter, and then it's mostly about Paul and what they did and how they built the church and spread the church. But the church, we find, is being built all over the place because of some of the people that we meet. Uh, first of all would be Aquila and Priscilla, and we see them introduced in verse 2 of uh, chapter 18. And he meets Aquila, and they have come from Rome. Now, he's not originally from Rome, but they've come from Rome because Emperor Claudius commanded that all the Jews leave Rome. According to Suetonius, uh, who was a historian at the time, the emperor, quote, banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation, instigation of one Crestus. Well, interestingly, the word Crestus is very similar to the word Christos, which would be Christ. And this is perhaps a misunderstanding of what his name was uh, by the historian, or perhaps there was a particular person named Crestus who was causing these problems. But nevertheless, this would appear to be that the kind of upsets that we had with Paul when he would go to the synagogues, he would preach Christ and all of a sudden things would fall apart and they'd start persecuting him, maybe wasn't just isolated and maybe wasn't just limited to the Apostle Paul. And these things perhaps were happening elsewhere. Well, they were expelled and we know when this happened. This happened in AD 49. And the uh, this emperor passed away in AD 54. So this then gives us a very tight window of when Paul was actually in Corinth uh, during this stay that is spoken of here. It was sometime between AD 49 and AD 54, probably closer to 49. And we know that... Uh, that Aquila and Priscilla were by trade tent makers like Paul, according to the passage here. And that might be the manner in which they met and, and the place, the occasion they had to meet as Paul is making uh, some money for himself to support himself while he's there. Now, interestingly, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned six times Four of those six times, her name comes first, Priscilla and Aquila, which is very interesting. Not the normal way she would do this. So it's possible that she was the real driver, the one that was very, very active and very known to many people, Aquila being more the, the silent type. And uh, But both were godly people. Both were believers. And this is uh, interesting. They're mentioned in a letter to Rome that Paul wrote to Rome in AD 55. So sometime after this, Paul writes this letter to Rome and he, he writes and mentions these two. So they got back to Rome at some point. And we know that Paul eventually went to Rome in AD 59 uh, at the hands of the Roman government and uh, as a prisoner. And we'll get to that exciting story later, but this means he probably met up with these, these folks once again. So they made tents together. And the question is, were Aquila and Priscilla Christians before meeting Paul? 
really not sure. There's no mention of Paul preaching to them, and perhaps they were already somewhat mature in the faith because of their great ability to even correct someone like Apollos, as we see later in the chapter. So these were people that were very skilled with the Word of God. Uh, if they became believers when Paul met them, they hit the ground running for sure because they became mature believers almost right away, working with Paul in the ministry there at Corinth and then leaving with them, uh, leaving with him and going as far as Ephesus and then ministering there as well. So these were uh, fascinating people and a great help to Paul. Next would be Silas and Timothy. We see there in verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, so they had some work to do to wrap up back there in Macedonia. Remember, it was really Paul that had to get out of harm's way uh, back there in Berea. And Silas and Timothy stayed behind to continue some of the work with the church there. Well, they show up too, and Silas and Timothy both are just critical helps to Paul. He did time with both these brothers in Christ, uh, spending time in prison with Silas a couple chapters ago in the book of Acts, sometime later spending time in prison with Timothy. And they had gone through things together, they had ministered together, they had seen Paul through difficulty and ministered to him and, and worked alongside him in the churches. And we're going to find out that, that Silas and Timothy both continue to be important to the Apostle Paul. And Silas even becomes mentioned by Peter. And it's Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. And so Silas seems to be, it's also Silvanus, seems to be with Peter at this time. He's very well known among the people. He's mentioned by Paul as writing First and Second Thessalonians with Paul and Timothy together. And he is mentioned, of course, in 2 Corinthians uh, as having ministered here, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I. Uh, and so this is important, these two men working alongside Paul and then working apart from Paul. Paul writes to Timothy after Timothy kind of takes over the pastoral role at Ephesus and he remains there for a great deal of time. And Paul writes uh, two very important letters to him. And so these are well-known brothers in Christ, as uh, almost as well-known as Paul to many people, and particularly in Ephesus and in Corinth, where they ministered together. There's also other people that come into view here. Here we have a, a Tedious Justice, and he left there, went to the house of a man named Tedious Justice, a worshiper of God, his house, ironically, right next door to the synagogue. So as soon as Paul gives up on the synagogue and, and the preaching of the word there, he shakes out his garments as a testimony against them, which is like saying, you know, I'm, I'm even going to shake the filth off that I might have gotten on me while I was here. And, and it's a pretty, pretty intense kind of a testimony against them. And he ends up teaching right next door to the synagogue at this uh, other home. And interesting, Crispus uh, also becomes a believer. The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord. Now, later in the chapter, we meet another man that's also ruler of the synagogue. So we think Crispus probably was no longer ruler of the synagogue after going away with Paul and leaving the synagogue work to go and, and continue the work to spread the, the new Christian church. 
So these are some of the people, but there were many more. And this is part of this vision that he has in, in 18 verse 10, where the Lord says, uh, I have many in this city who are my people. And that's a fascinating verse because Paul is being left there and, and he's being told in the vision, look, you're going to stay here a while. Don't be afraid. Keep on teaching because there are many here of my people. And that is truly amazing that uh, the Lord, uh, such a good predictor of the success of Paul, is able to say there's many of my people here. No, the Lord knows whose his are. And they hear his voice and he calls them and they come. And this is a powerful encouragement to Paul to know that there are going to continue to be converts here, that it will continue to bear fruit. And so those are some of the people of God that we meet in this chapter. We also see here the provision of God, the provision of God. And this is important because I, I, want, I want you to see that this provision of God is, is something that is absolutely necessary to the ministry of the word. Because as people minister and as they go and as they live, they must eat, they must have a place to stay. They must be able to, to be supported to live their life. And living life requires funds, it requires money. But this is a little different kind of provision than we might be accustomed to. It was very popular in the city of Corinth. And we have to understand something about the background of this city of Corinth in order to understand all that we saw in Athens and all the false religions and all the dedication to philosophy and, and wanting to hear whatever the latest thing is. The same was true of Corinth. The same kind of people that would frequent Athens to go and speak or to hear things would also come to Corinth and to speak or to share things or to hear things. And so there were many traveling teachers and they would come to town and they would, they would say what it is they have to teach and to say and they would hope by doing so that someone would offer them a place to stay, that they would be offered money to continue the work that they do as people believe in them or whatever. And here you have then every kind of religion, every kind of philosophy and many, many scoundrels willing to take advantage of people because of their great eloquence, because of their ability to amaze or to stun or to shock people, to entertain people, that they would be rewarded with some money. And so we find Paul, and what is Paul doing? Paul is working for a living while he is there. And the reason is because of this context, because he is. And here we have, um, they were, uh, verse 3 here, they were tent makers by trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, as was Paul. And this is important for Paul because Paul is able to say then, as he writes back to the Corinthian church, he, he says, he's able to say, I wasn't like the other guys. Um, and look what he says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. He says, it's been reported to me 
by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, the Corinthian church had a tendency to be man-centered, to be people-centered, and so they would split into factions. Oh, I, I follow Paul. I, I want to be more like him. Or, no, 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 I like Apollos better. You know, he's a little better. He's a little more eloquent, you know. And, and they would split into these factions following men. And Paul's like, no, 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 it's not to be the way. And Paul makes a point that he indeed was not the kind of guy that, that came and promoted men. He came promoting God. And this is why he worked for himself so that it would be clear that, that his message was of God, that his message was not for his own benefit or gain, not for himself to gain followers, but rather that others would follow the Lord. And he goes on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 2, contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man. And much of that contrast has to do with the focus upon the skills of men as opposed to the power of God. Now, other places that Paul went, sometimes he allowed the church to support him and the the people that he ministered to to support him and he even writes in letter to Timothy and to Titus he implies this is right this is proper that the person giving the gospel then would be rewarded and would be uh supplied for but he himself did not do that in Corinth because of the context because of the way that things were here and this is not the only mention we'll have of Paul supporting himself there's a tradition among Jewish people, and it's, it's interesting that Paul, so learned in the ways of Judaism, a Pharisee uh, according to their religion, and so learned in the ways of the world, being very skilled in, in Greek and in the language and in the philosophies of the world, and he was skilled and educated in all these ways, and yet he had a trade such as tent-making. There's a Jewish proverb that says, he who does not teach his son to work teaches him to steal. He who does not teach his son to work teaches him to steal. And so it was important for Paul to have a trade to fall back on, to be able to earn a living in a place like Corinth that was going to be able to hold it against him when he did not. Now, I said the provision of God in my outline here, and you might say, well, that's not a provision of God. That's a, that's a provision of Paul himself. Paul's the one working for a living. God didn't provide this. No, God did provide it. God provided it to him in his skills and in the skills that God gave him and in the upbringing that God gave him that he would have a trade. And so this is indeed a provision of God, and indeed it is a provision of God that some ministers are able to work for a living in order to be part of a ministry that requires even their uh, funds to continue to fulfill. But we need to be reminded then of a promise of Jesus about uh, following him and about being part of the kingdom. He says, 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, all of what things? Well, all that he just spoke about. This is in Matthew 6, 33. And what he just got done speaking about is for you, that is the follower of Christ, don't worry about where you're going to stay. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Your heavenly Father knows your needs and will supply your needs. But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, these things will be added to you. Paul was seeking first the kingdom. His priority was to spread the gospel. When he introduced himself to people, he introduced himself as a preacher. He introduced himself as a minister of the gospel, not as a tent maker. When he writes to the people, he doesn't say Paul, the tent maker. He says Paul, the apostle. And so he indeed considers his work with Christ and for Christ primary. But nevertheless, this is his provision by God as he is having this fulfilled. He is seeking first the kingdom and then having added to him all that he needs. There's also a great protection of God that's mentioned here. The next thing here is the protection of God. And the central issue that I really want to look at here is this vision that he receives in verses 9 and 10. We'll read it again. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So this is a huge encouragement to Paul. Do not be afraid. No one will attack you or harm you. Paul's pattern is, if we recall his pattern, is to generally go into a city and begin preaching in the synagogue, as we saw him do here. And once the synagogue uh, tired of Paul and he had some, always had some converts from the synagogue, then he would turn more to the Gentiles. He would stop preaching in the synagogue. He'd turn to the Gentiles. And usually about that time is when the city would get fed up with him, would persecute him and throw him out. But we we don't see that happen here. We see his pattern broken here and Paul or and God kind of interrupts Paul and gives him this reassurance. Look, no one here is going to attack you. You go on teaching. And Paul may have been thinking, look, it's been a few weeks. I'm probably about to wear this out. Where am I going to go next? Maybe he's making plans on on what he's going to do next. But the Lord says, no, 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 you're going to be here a while. Indeed he was. He was there some 18 months teaching and preaching the word of God. These are powerfully important principles for us to be taking a look at. Look, look with me in Jeremiah 1.8. The prophet Jeremiah was told a very similar thing. And this is a common thread among the servants of God, that God would encourage them in this way. We see something similar in the beginning of the book of Joshua. Uh, Jeremiah is told, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah was bringing an unpopular message to the people. And Jeremiah would probably be persecuted. And as we read the book of Jeremiah, indeed, he was. He definitely was. And so this is a general principle that we see to not be in fear. 
And one should always choose the fear of God over the fear of what men could do to us. This is what Jesus says when he says, uh, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should be most concerned with God and his priorities over and above the concerns of men. This is what we saw early in the book of Acts as Peter and John were brought before the authorities and they said, you judge whether we ought to listen to men or to God. And so this is important. He was given this vision because he had been attacked in other places that he had gone. He will be attacked again as we continue to read through the, the book of Acts. Uh, being attacked and persecuted for the gospel is a large part of his resume. But here in this place, God in his kindness sets the expectation that that's not going to happen here, Paul. You go on teaching. Now, later in the chapter, we are going to see some trouble develop. And the interesting thing is the trouble doesn't affect Paul directly. And it does not result in Paul having to leave town. Uh, the procurator of the uh, city at that time is not interested in getting involved. He considers these things to be uh, Jewish problems, to be religious problems, and he puts them off. And this protection of God is important, but it's not the most important thing when we go back to verse 10 here. You notice the beginning of verse 10, for I am with you. This brings us to our fourth P here, that it is the presence of God that is most important, that is most precious to the minister of God, to the missionaries of God. This presence of God, this I am with you, is attached specifically to the Great Commission by our Lord Jesus Christ. If we will look here in the book of Matthew, when he gives the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples. Uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That this was a promise attached to the Great Commission. Jesus says, you can do this because I will be with you. It will, he said in uh, John 14, he will not leave us as orphans. To understand this concept of his abiding presence with us, of him not leaving us as orphans, but accompanying us in the work, John chapters 14 through 17 are critical to understand this. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God indwells his people. And in John 14 and 16, those are some of the primary passages that explain the work of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus explains what's going to happen and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon us and he's going to empower this. This is how he can say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you always. The very desire of God is to have fellowship with his people. To have fellowship with his people. Look what Jesus prays after John 14 through 16. Right before he's going to be arrested, he prays this with his disciples and for his disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. If you believe in Jesus Christ right here that night, Jesus prays for you. 
and he prays for you, what? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. His desire was for us to be one with the Father and Son and with one another, for all of us to be unified together in fellowship. This was a major emphasis of the Apostle John. This was the way that he saw it. Remember, John referred to to himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. And so he really saw this fellowship, this love, this intimacy with Christ as central to the Christian life. Look how he opens his letter. This is in 1 John chapter 1. He says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that, so he lays out the purpose here, We're proclaiming these things to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Think about the fact that the church is called, and interestingly by Paul, the body of Christ. The body body of Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. I don't think we take that phrase literally enough. I don't think that many believers understand really what their function, what their part is in being the body of Christ. And now apply this idea of being the body of Christ and think about Paul's situation. He's away from home He's away from Tarsus and his family and others. He's away from Antioch, which is his home church, his church family that sent him out. He's away from Jerusalem, which is kind of also a home to him in that that's where he learned and where he spent many of his days and probably his education, the entire time of his education and his upbringing. And he has been on the road for months and he's possibly got some road weariness. See, I want you to remember and to recall that what Paul is doing here is he's basically on a mission trip. And he's on this mission trip and he ends up in one place here in Corinth for 18 months. See, our concept today generally is when we go on a mission trip, ah, we're going to go to such and such a place for a week and we're going to do some things there and and we might go somewhere else for another week. But here's Paul and this was rather open-ended. We're going to go on mission. Why? We're going to go to places. How long? I don't know. However long till they kick me out or until the Lord takes us on to the next place and we feel like we need to go somewhere else. They were just kind of doing this by feel, and Paul ends up on this trip for a couple years. And so this is powerfully important for us to understand that he is in a position to be longing for the sweet fellowship and the encouragement and the comfort of home. 
be it his home church, be it his home city of Jerusalem, or, or even his home where his biological family is. He perhaps desires for that additional learning that he can have. The, the people that are his equals, that perhaps he wants to go spend time with the leaders in Jerusalem to, to speak of their time with Christ and, and to further have those things reinforced. He is continually pouring out and pouring into the lives of others. But who is pouring into Paul? Who is teaching Paul? How is Paul learning through all of this? How is he being recharged as he continually gives and gives and gives? Is he a never-ending fountain of this giving of the gospel? Or is he being poured into by continual fellowship with Christ? See, maybe he's not desirous for home. Maybe Paul's issue is that he's desirous to break new ground. As you read the letters of Paul, as you see him in the book of Acts, you see a man that's rather restless to ever drive forward into areas where the gospel has not been preached. In fact, when he writes to Rome, where he had never been at the time of his writing, he speaks to them of, maybe you can help me on my way to Spain. So he's looking down the road even further and he's like, yeah, I long to see y'all and, and meet you in Rome so that we can exchange some, some gifts, you know, as far as spiritual gifts go and, and teaching and things like that. But he's like, but I'm also looking down the road. I'm going to the next place. Either way, if Paul is anxious for home, if he's anxious for the call of the road, he is calmed by God and God reassures him continue here stay here work and endure and how can he do that he can do that because of what God says to him in verse 10 I am with you I am with you that is the real key that's going to carry him through. That's how he is able to do it. And as Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure, he had a great concentration of imperatives in John chapter 15, because really the context goes from John chapter 13, where they're having Lord's Supper together. He begins to teach them then. He teaches them all the way through John chapters 14, 15, 16, which is kind of all one discourse, all took place in the same night. And in John 17, he caps all this off with a prayer. Well, in the middle of that, in John chapter 15, there's a whole bunch of imperatives. In other words, commands that he gives them. They're clustered there in the beginning of chapter 15, and they are clustered around this idea of abiding. He says, abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. And this idea of abiding is a powerfully important idea because that word means to dwell. In other words, you would use that Greek word if you were in town for a couple weeks and somebody asked, where are you abiding? They want to know where you're living. Where have you left your suitcase and your stuff? Where are you going back to tonight? And Jesus uses that words in, word and he says, I want you to abide. I want you to dwell. I want you to make your living place in me. Because he knew from time to time and from place to place that his people would be moved around, sometimes in order to accomplish the work, sometimes against their will. And like 
Priscilla and Aquila being forced out of Rome because all the Jews were forced out of Rome. And he knew they'd be on the road, but that shouldn't bother a believer in Jesus Christ because a believer in Jesus Christ has their abiding, their dwelling place, their living place, their home in Christ himself. And this must be what we prefer above all other things. This is how Paul can go on because he prefers to be with Christ. And remember when he despaired of his life and he writes to a church and he says, I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For I would rather go and be with Christ. And yet he becomes convinced, I think I'll stay for your benefit. His desire was to be with Christ, should be the desire of all people in Christ. And yet he is our dwelling place wherever we go. And that's critically important that he be our dwelling place because it's when we're in the presence of God that we're the most effective for God. This is what we must prefer. Think about when Moses came down off the mountain after being up there receiving the law of God, spending this time face to face with God, and he comes down in his face shone. And it shone so much that it made such an impression on the people around him that he eventually wore a veil. And this is because he was in the presence of God himself. It seemed that as Paul came to Corinth, things were very different. It's almost like all of his greatness was set aside for a time as his great eloquence, his great genius. And, and you can read his letters and, and scholars that dig deeply into his letters, understanding the philosophies in the background and the language that he's using and everything else. They see a great brilliance that God had gifted him to, to preach the gospel in the way that he did. It's as if some of that, though, is laid aside for his ministry in Corinth so that the power of God can be seen. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 here and listen how Paul describes his time with Corinth. Now remember the context, what Corinth was like. They had these people coming through all the time and they'd become fans of them and they would, they would teach these guys or they would, they would listen to these guys and, and be learned from these guys, these traveling teachers coming through and then become fans and follow them, you know, uh, at least in theory. And listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Why did God do it this way? The purpose comes in verse 5 here. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God chose for Paul to come here in this way. For whatever reason, he was weak and he was with fear and much trembling. This was not the Paul that we've seen in other places who stood up so boldly and proclaimed things. This is 
a, a weak and quiet Paul who maybe was having trouble at the time, maybe even having health issues was could be why he's referring to weakness there. Why? So that when people began to believe, when lives became changed, it would be obvious that this was the power of God. This was not anything Paul did. Paul Paul's just a man. He, he's not a big, impressive man either. He's just a man. But look what's happening. This is obviously God at work. And that was the exact intention of God in doing it this way. The presence of God is by far the most important thing that has been demonstrated and promised to Paul in this passage. Because we saw the, the presence of God as being that enabling factor, that one thing that says, you're going to be able to do all this because I am with you. I want to go back to that verse and look at that one more time and read this vision again. Because we go back to the vision, the Lord says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why should he not be afraid? Why should he go on speaking and not be silent? And no one will attack you or harm you. Why? For I have in the city many who are my people. The real key is right in the middle of this. For I am with you. The presence of God is the single most important ingredient for all ministry, indeed all faith and practice in the Christian life. The presence of God abiding in Jesus Christ. And all through the book of Acts, I want you to understand as you read the the great, and it's called the Acts of the Apostles. In other words, it's the things that they did. But it would better be called perhaps the acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of God because everything is coming and overflowing from all of these men having the presence of God in them and having this presence of God. Now God's presence is not limited to the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The people of God is God's presence because the people of God indeed all also are the body of Christ. And as we surround ourselves with believers in Jesus Christ, we are surrounded with the presence of God himself. And maybe this is why so many Christians suffer is they're not part of the body of Christ. They're not really active and engaged and in fellowship with a local body of believers. So they deprive themselves of the presence of God in that way. The provision of God is also a, a, a factor of the presence of God. And this is, you know, the, the providing of God, however it comes, whether it comes by our own means and by our skills and by the labor of our own hands, or whether it's gifted to us by other people of God or even people of the world, that is also the presence of God. And the protection of God is also the very presence of God. For if we go yet a single day without calamity, it is all the grace of God to make it so. But the presence of God is not erased when the protection of God does not appear to us. When we suffer persecutions or other things, he is still with us and he has greater purposes even in those persecutions as we see in the life of Paul here in the book of Acts. Well, so my encouragement to you is to follow the imperative of John chapter 15 and abide in Jesus Christ so that you may understand and benefit from the presence of God. Let's close with a word of prayer.
Father God, we thank you and praise you for your wonderful work in Paul. We thank you for the presence of God that is indeed something that is, is given to all believers. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to partake of it more and more. And help us, Lord, to understand you more and more, that we may embrace all that you have for us. And so make your name great by showing your great power and your great care for your people. We praise you and thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. And I hope you've enjoyed this time. I invite you to uh, contact us with any kind of questions or concerns that you might have. Uh, you can find out more about us at whitethrun.org. Or you can email us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. I'll receive those emails myself. I'll answer your questions. I'll, I'll take your criticism. I'll take your compliments. Whatever you have for us, the Lord will use it to his great benefit and uh, in, to the benefit of this ministry. So please contact us and let us know what you're thinking. Uh, God be with you.